been at it. He's recorded shitloads of albums. In it. Okay, final stretch. Final stretch. How has it been producing this show within the show? Really fun, but it's uh, also a, a quite daunting responsibility. Yeah. And the, I know this is like a pod series within a pod series, but are we the first Martin Birch pod? I'd like to imagine it's the best uh, recap of his discography. Yeah. But it's because I've seen basically none of those. Uh, not really. No. Uh, again, I mentioned way back, and I always mention Deep Purple Podcast, and they, of course, have covered many of the records and uh, the nicknames, etc. Mm. Uh, but um, that's because he's involved, right, in, yeah. in, in those albums. Yeah, of course. In those albums. So, um, yeah, it's probably the best. Maybe the only. Maybe the only. Yeah. And uh, I will say, uh, honestly, say that I couldn't have, uh, I wouldn't have produced it myself uh, it would have been too heavy on the research mm. since i tend to go more on the fly with most things <laughs> which is possible with maiden because it's just like a lifetime of you've done your research yeah it's right. time to record. unknowingly yeah, yeah. unknowingly course, just having fun rocking out yeah uh, but um yeah and you maybe a third of what you brought forward i was familiar with yeah something like that and uh, two-thirds completely new stuff yeah and also stuff i was familiar with like uh, them play on didn't know it was birch no so um yeah <laughs> uh, very enjoyable for me of course yeah and i think that uh, i want to make sure that we had like dates right and facts right about studios and so on so i think that was have been quite scary in that way because i imagine we say loads of things that are qualified guesses at best uh, yeah. which are probably wrong even yep but uh, at the same time and i honestly feel this someone had to do this yeah i think so because martin birch is like a pivotal mega super important person in the history of our maiden yep. and i would even say in the history of rock, music rock music rock music yeah yeah i agree with that and uh like uh, when you asked um, quite a while back, I said I had the idea of a Martin Birch episode, but uh, probably would have been more like what we're going to do in this final episode, like highlights, listening to what was it, 70 albums? <laughs> yeah, yeah, more than 70 yeah, albums. That would not have occurred. Not 17, 70. 70. <laughs> and you listened to them all. I did. Yeah, so you basically listened to everything he did that is available. Uh, yeah, because I also unfortunately discovered that there are quite a few albums that I only know titles of, but I couldn't really find, not on YouTube, not on mm -hmm. any site. Like half a dozen or more? Um, roughly, yeah. So maybe he's involved in close to 100 albums or 80? I would guess. Like I said in the first episode, I believe, uh, the most extensive list, literally, of all the recordings is to be found on Discogs. Right, uh, Discogs is usually the best source for, yeah. for anything like that. One thing I find quite strange is this. Martin Birch worked with Deep Purple. Yes. He worked with members of Deep Purple for different projects, bands, solo efforts. Elements, Saraband. Yeah. Green Bullfrog. Yeah. 
Exactly. Did we we didn't do Green Bullfrog, did we? Or did we? No, we we didn't do that. I think. I think we mentioned the name, but I don't think we actually listened to any music. It's blues rock. It's blues rock. It's jam session. Yeah. Anyway, what I found strange is that Martin worked with all the members of Deep Purple. The studio where he was a studio house engineer, Delaine Lee, the owner of the studio, moved the studio to a new facility at Wembley in London. Right. But the old studio was still left in the old address at Kingsway. And became Kingsway Studios. And, yeah, became Kingsway Recorders. It was bought by... Ian Gillen. Ian Gillen. And this is the thing. And maybe there are some Deep Purple fanatics who can... I've tried to research this, but I haven't come up with anything. But I know for sure that when... Ian Gillen left the Purple. He then didn't really do much music or anything for about two years before he made, yeah, yeah. made a sort he, of He comeback. tried weird stuff like becoming a businessman. Yeah, exactly. I think it was like own a mo- motorcycle company or something. Yeah, but he bought the studio yeah. and uh, according to Martin himself, he worked there and turned it into Kingsway Recorders. Mm-hmm. Okay. The funny bit, strange bit, weird bit, is that he never worked or recorded Ian Gillen. And why is that? Yeah, he didn't record Ian Gillen band, he didn't record Gillen. No, but isn't that a bit strange? It is a bit strange. I don't know if it was maybe that... Okay, now it's another wild guess here. I think that maybe Gillen thought he's the deeper producer uh, and I want to go for something different. Maybe, maybe simple as that. Yeah, But he's the only member of Deep Purple who thought like that. Yeah. And it still required the help of Martin Birch to turn the studio into Kingsway Recorders. So Martin Birch was there. Yeah, he was there. Then I don't think it would be like working for you, interpersonal uh, conflict or anything. I don't think. Like I said, I never heard of such a conflict, but it is a bit intriguing, at least. It's a bit intriguing. Yeah, McGillan is a bit. He's um, a bit of an oddball, you know, in some ways, uh, in a different way than Richie, and they did, weren't com- uh, very compatible as. They fought quite a bit, but I think uh, like Gillan was very uh, also like on on the fly volley kind of guy, take it on the volley, like writing lyrics last second. Good golly, Miss Molly, and that kind of stuff. So I think he may not have had uh, a very deep reasoning behind this, you know, just going by whim or something. But this is me guessing again. Yeah, it's kind of strange. Yeah. Anyway, continue. Let's continue into uh, well, uh, let's play a tune uh, to set the mood for. The final episode, episode six, which is also Gian Gillen's first band, actually. Hello and welcome to Samsung A to Z. <laughs> what is that? Thunder something? Thunderstick? Thunderstick. Uh, What's the drummer or, or Samsung? The original title of this song yeah. was... Uh, Thunderburst. Thunderburst. That's it. Yeah. What you hear is Eyes of March. And we are now listening to Killers, the first album Martin Birch recorded with Iron Man, of course. As you all know, we don't have to talk in detail about that. Right, so in discography terms, this is the first song. Yeah. The first album was recorded in a studio called Morgan Studios. Morgan, okay. Yeah, but Battery Studios, where this re- Killers were recorded, is the same studio. Okay. They just changed names. I did not know that. It's the same, same place. That makes Martin even more impressive, because you can't tell that it's the same space. I can't, anyway. No. It sounds like a revolutionized sound. Yeah. 
and I even kind of like the first Iron Maiden record sound-wise, but this is another world. I think uh, the studio had like two studios, two rooms, two control rooms, two... Two control rooms, okay. We saw, to our big surprise, that the drums are recorded with one, two, three, four mics. Yes, kick, snare, overhead left, overhead right. Yeah. One thing I notice above all when I hear Ratchild, but what do you notice? Imagine that you're a Maiden fan and uh, Killers is new. I, I know for sure that most of Maiden fans were very familiar with this song because it's been released. Our Jurassic era, as Dickinson said. Yeah. First thing I notice is that the bass sound is uh, basically just heavier. And there's a lot of guitars in this one compared to old versions of Ratchild. Um, I think either it was Martin or it was Adrian or it was a collab in between them to add all those little flavors, which I think add to the song. This is, uh, sound-wise, it's quite close to Number of the Beast, of course. Yeah, and a sort of that. And a sort of that. But it doesn't really sound like Lois the Cult. It doesn't really sound like Mob Rules. It tells of uh, Martin uh, not changing the bands, uh, the mirror thing, right? Yeah. In all our examples we've heard, we've heard uh, identities of bands, not of a demon producer. Even though this kick-ass snare drum we can recognize a bit now yeah. at this point. Sounds great. It's like that uh, commercial for some uh, fake butter. I can't believe it's not butter. I will say, I can't believe they're not close mic'd. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's hard to believe. It, it really is. I did my early recordings like that, yeah. but not as good a Tom sound. No, but I mean, you, you really have to have a good sounding drum kit, basically, to pull this off. If you have like old 
Oh yeah, old heads or old heads, exactly. Shit symbols. Yeah. Uh, and I'm, I'm guessing neither Clive or uh, Martin tuned them. Probably someone came in and tuned them. I'm guessing. That's another wild guess. Hey, this is uh, Future Jonathan with a quick interruption. It's uh, come to my attention, or actually, first I gotta say thanks to Henrik for enlightening us um, with the image of the uh, charts from the. Uh, killer's recording at battery studios um anyway when i saw it first time and noticed it was just four tracks for drums i figured it must be four tracks on the mixing tape meaning probably i mean even double or more microphones only that they are submixed down before going to the master mixtape so you could say like um, well, every tom could be closed mic'd, the snare could have a mic underneath, and uh, they would then be mixed before they go onto the tape, which in turn will be the source for mixing the record. So that was my original theory, and then I got kind of into the idea of it just being four drum mics, and how that could maybe be actually be possible in a good room, good mics, and a good engineer. But um, I turned to Emil Mikols, uh, drummer extraordinaire in Astral Guard, in um, Six Feet Deeper, and in uh, Infinite Maiden. According to him, there's no way that it's just four mics, must be submix groups. And he also mentioned that it was really common back then in hard rock, well, in rock and pop in general, to do submixes because you simply didn't have enough tracks on tape recorder you know to keep up the highest possible level of fact correctness back to the program martin and this is it's well known that martin heard the first our main album and thought oh why didn't i do that album yeah I, and i, I heard that great. rumor that richie played yeah. it to him and if it's true or not i don't know i'd like to believe it's true because i yeah. like the idea of that scene yeah. where it's uh, one of their birthdays. It's Long Island, New York. Yeah. And uh, Richie puts on this future in um, in hard rock, uh, heavy metal, uh, and plays it for his producer. It wasn't his producer at that time, though. But apparently they, they were on good terms since he was at this party. I guess he was in the US to work with uh, the, the Cultosaurus Erectus album, right, which were yeah. recorded in New York. So he happened to, to meet up with, uh, with Richie. Who then happened to play? Yeah, and he uh, never recommends first. anyone anything. No. Like he, he like he recommends Vanilla Fudge. That's all I've heard him say anything good about, or maybe a band or two more. You know, but uh, uh, him recommending Iron Maiden, it's a bit outlandish. But I really, really hope uh, he did. That would be a great thing. And of course, they toured in '82. Yeah, uh, Rainbow and Maiden. Riches strikes again. Anyway, anyway, <laughs> we've talked plenty about Rainbow. Yeah, it's, it's, I'm, I'm developing Richie Tourette's, I think. A little bit, a little bit. It's just a, you know, interesting that's, guy. That's a good Tourette's, I think. It's, it's replacing my Metallica Tourette's. <laughs> and then for Maiden, it's just a, I have a Maiden problem. It's like, like a Maiden Holic or something. Yeah. So there's the different brands of it. But yeah, uh, you know, and that goes to Topic, right? Yeah. Topic is, uh, believe it or not, on Maiden A to C, we're going to talk about our Maiden today. Yeah. Do you have anything to add or subtract from the killer's sound? Uh, because I don't. For me, it's complete. It is for me too. Yeah, I think when I was a bit younger, I didn't really 
think that much of the sound, because being a Maiden fan, you are so spoilt with great sounding albums. Yeah, and more maybe more extreme or niche sounding. Power yeah. Slave is to me a bit more extreme sounding, a bit um, yeah. harder edged, or yeah. maybe even more unique character. Yeah, Killers has also in the riffs uh, quite a bit of Deep Purple. Uh, it's the, the Maiden album with the most Deep Purple ish style on there, but the yeah. sound itself yeah. is uh, is a different one, which is yeah. closer to again Assault Attack or Number of the Beast as well. Um, the early 80s, the lovely early 80s sound is super heavy. Excellent production. Uh, and like so many have said over the years about what his, what is Martin Birch's secret, what's the secret sauce, yeah. the secret ingredients. And I think the, the thing is there, there really wasn't any, except that he had great ears. Also the guys in Iron Maiden say that he was this mirror. Mirror. He held it up this mirror to and, and and a flattering one. Flattering mirror, yeah. It's a super mirror yeah. where you look younger and brighter and yeah. smarter and cooler. We don't really know, but at least they have talked about that. He sometimes threw in ideas for arrangements and should this go here and I think blah 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 whatever. But first and foremost, he was a sound engineer. He was working the sounds, <coughs> making sure, like we talked about, um, for example, in the in the Black Sabbath one where they talked about finding guitar sounds for Mob Rules, for example, that he paid attention and it was crucial to him to have uh, the sound. And uh, he also worked on the performances, of course. Yeah. So, yeah. I mean, he was the headmaster. In, in those years, yeah. you really did uh, do takes more so than today, uh, for obvious reasons. Yeah. Like, uh, it's hard to edit tape. Um, and I would say also, I would add to it that um, he's famous for, which might be made up, but like, you know, he has a very good grasp of the mid-register, mm -hmm. which is where rock and roll in general is at, and Maiden for sure. Yeah. They don't have much sub-bass, and they don't have that much uh, super top brilliance. A little bit more now with Shirley, but it's also another age of equipment, etc. Yeah, and I think the fact that he was a guitarist actually helped, because uh, it's guitar-oriented music. Yeah, of course. And... Uh, we, in the last episode, we were kind of guessing, is this a keyboard or is this a guitar effect? Mm. Those guitar effects and his approach coming in via the guitar, mm. I think, um, was a good thing for the bands he produced. Mm. Um, and, well, maybe it's pretty standard. Like, that's how I started, you know, you fiddle around with the, the amp. And then you're a sound engineer, <laughs> kind of, you know. Yeah. You have to get a lot better after that, but yeah. that you pretty much started. And probably how he started, you know, dialing in his amp and getting a feel for it. Yeah. And then um, gathering experience. But uh, in the very first episode of this miniseries, we um, heard, uh, I would say he came out pretty, pretty strong as a, you know, very young man, like 20 mm -hmm. Yeah, it was barely amazing. twenty. Yeah, uh, but it was also more, you know, the acoustic stuff, etc. It's much harder to produce a heavy metal band. It's actually pretty hard to produce a heavy metal band because of all the distortion, volume, and uh, the sound that is not even already on Killers, not completely a natural sound. Yeah, it's a uh, example blues rock. Yeah, that sounds more like the band itself, or mm. folk music sounds maybe exactly like the band itself. Mm. Whereas metal is always, or not always, but it came to be a fairly produced yeah. genre. And I, I read some interviews somewhere where he talked about this, that one of the, the uh, 
challenges of working with heavy metal bands and hard rock bands is the volume. Yeah, the sheer that volume. You, you need volume in the amplifiers. You need to, to record things a bit louder. A bit louder, yeah. And even now with modern equipment, I find myself wanting to have maybe a little bit too loud for my own ear health mm-hmm. to get the full feeling. Yeah. Because it's loud music. Yeah. Like inherently loud. Yeah. One could say. So um, yeah, maybe that's there's no secret sauce. I don't think either. No. But uh, there is um, maybe a string of um, nice um, coincidence and uh, raw talent and uh, also something we mentioned in passing many times. Probably a very friendly and uh, professional overall good character. Yeah, that seems to be. Yeah, he was a, a likable guy since he seem to go back and work with the same people over and over and over again, they mm. must have liked him. Right. Yeah, he was a, a good psychologist, a, a great juggler, so to speak. And I know also that Martin, like I said, he said in, in several interviews that he uh, enjoyed working with Maiden the most because they were, were very receptive. They were... Uh, a bit younger than many of the bands he had worked with. Yeah, that's right. They were really young when they started. Yeah, in the early eighties, because by then he was working with more, well, in some cases the same artists since he was that he had been working with in the early seventies. He was still working with them in the in the late seventies and the early eighties, yeah. and now he had a band who were looking up to him in a good way. Like, okay, you know this better than us. What do you think we should do? I know that he thought that was very inspiring to work with. Yeah. Uh, not having to deal with big egos. He said plenty of times that one of the advantages of working with Maiden, even though they had like two guitar players, uh, there were no competition. There were team players. Especially not in between those two guys. <laughs> Especially not in between those such two guys. Such a beautiful yeah. relationship there. Yeah, have. Uh, absolutely. And he, like, and he praised that. He said, they all work for the music. They work for the song. Right. Another thing he said, which I thought was kind of uh, funny, mm-hmm. uh, even, was that he he thought that Maiden, and this was from an interview made, I think eighty three or something. Okay. Uh, so it was he. There was uh, maybe he'd done Peace of Mind, or he had done two albums or three. I the don't. The band was way on their way up. up. Yeah, but he said that. Our Maiden's music is much more, and he used the word robust. And he said that in the 70s, many artists and bands, they went on a, a guitar solo for 20 minutes, oh. jamming out. Maiden didn't do that. They worked the songs. I of them as such when I was younger. Only now that I'm thinking, like, why do I still like Iron Maiden so much? Why do I hold them as the best band ever? And I think it also goes towards that, that it's actually the songs way up in and there's a, there's a little meta discussion that we shouldn't get too deep into but i gotta ask you because it comes up now and then uh, and it's uh, the matter of um, the whip or you know tutoring the band or pushing the band mm. for the ultimate performance yeah do you think he did that a lot we obviously know the number of the beast story the singing uh, so to put that aside do you think he did that a lot because it's um, great performances on the, in the 80s records or is it more like Maiden's sports mentality that they, you know they themselves wanted to to uh, play at the top of their game, especially then, like coming up, 
uh, maybe a combination. It's like this is a guessing game. Yeah. So it's a, it's a, it's a good question. Yeah. But I, I I think that I mean Steve have told stories about recording the first album and they had a, a <laughs> producer was like reading uh, country fair and they're yeah. buffing yeah buffing not really six. there. So I mean they they wanted someone to yeah. show them push them. Yeah, so make young, sort of decisions. As a young for band yeah. with a burning ambition and yeah. with a, you know, kind of a sky is the limit uh, approach. Yeah. Uh, well, they also went up into the sky. It's one of the biggest bands ever. Yeah. So well done, Iron Maiden. But uh, with that uh, in mind, there was Steve's, you know, Steve's overall view on on the whole project. Yeah. It makes a lot of sense to get some experienced ears in there when you're like 20 years old you know bruce was like 23 when they did uh, number of the beast i think young guys it's a factor within this because you might need some experience then either you get experience or you just do the young men thing and just be obnoxious but steve uh, wasn't a punk he was more of a prog rocker really yeah and then you know yeah i think it makes all kinds of sense to to get a little bit of a, a more experienced bloke in there. Yeah, there there is a a, a funny quote. Mm-hmm. F- funny, I say funny all the time. I don't know why, but an interesting quote at least uh, in this interview. This one of the very very few interviews I've ever found with him. When is this, by the way? Uh, For this, context, I, I think this is eighty three, and it's from a French magazine called Best Magazine, interviewed by Ave Picard. I don't consider myself a super technician. What I do to me is pretty simple. But the fact that I'm used to the bands that I have worked with helps me to know what uh, instantly what they want or even what they can achieve, even if they don't realize it clearly themselves. Well, that's a bit of the whip thing. Yeah. The old riff that uh, Adrian Smith did when he was uh, a kid. Urchin. An urchin. Quite like communication breakdown, but I love the guitar tone here. It's, it's for me, it's very kind of metal, kind of almost a bit icy, but not particularly cold. It's hard to describe. It's a great sound, sharp. Yeah, I would say sharp. The sound is it's not far off from the killer sound. It's just a bit better. So even though I kind of favorize the Killers production for several reasons, I would agree that's a bit better. It's more, um, it's clearer, more contrast in between guitars and uh, drums or guitars and bass. Yeah. And of course, you got Bruce Dickinson in there. What a weird thing it must have been to be a Maiden fan, and then they hired this new guy. That guy from Samsung? Swords and shields gleam in the sun, <laughs> falling out of your armchair. Anyway, this track has always been a production favorite of mine, 22 Arcash Avenue. Uh, I mean, I don't have any clever analysis, it just sounds... And the bass is really loud. Awesome. Yeah. Yeah, it's really loud. One of his better bass tracks. And it's also a bit of a start-stopper, but it never loses steam to me.
recorded in the same studio as Killers in. So this is the third time they returned to the same place to record an album. And as far as uh, vocal production, now that we hear Bruce Dickinson uh, through Martin Birch's uh, knob fiddling, it's pretty straightforward, I would say. Apparently they used a trombone microphone to record vocals. Some parts of this album, because there are ISO tracks available where you can hear a lot of delays and echoes and stuff, yeah. but I think they are temporary. Uh, and also there's that weird uh, down pitch in Number of the Beast, that yeah. is laying underneath, which is really cool. I think one of the earlier examples of doing that. What else can you say? Drums, again, this is a superb sound. It's that sound from Assault Attack last, last episode. So from working on this album, they all of a sudden had to become tax exiles. <laughs> oh yeah, right, yeah, uh, Jersey. So they went to Jersey. Shout out to uh, Paul Corcoran, uh, even though he's on the rival island of Guernsey. He was on with us for a couple of episodes. I remember. I asked him if it was a tax haven, he replied vaguely. <laughs> But I mean, he, he's a nurse, so he's an honest uh, worker, not a bank whiz. But I wanted to listen to a little bit of The Prisoner, uh, just because of that break. We're gonna do that song soon, so not to get in depth, but I think it's also a sonic highlight when uh, Adrian goes for the arpeggio, so it's a bit into the song. This is like, as cool as a guitar can sound still today. Yeah, it's a bit of reverb here, subtle. And then when the Clive and Steve locked in underneath, it's just, yeah. it's just so good, you know. Yeah, so to be continued, it's coming up soon. I would say Adrian's solo sound on this record. Just, just aggressive and nice. You know, it's just uh, in your face. There, there is uh, this really uh, cute quote where Adrian talks about working with Martin Burke for the first time. It was like, what can I do to impress Martin Birch? Like, I'm just Adrian Smith and I'm going to work with he said it was so daunting and scary going in yeah, into that I mean, situation. You aside, I would say he's a very impressive character. <laughs> One of the more impressive. Adrian is impressive. Like he, he tops himself on a level still today. Yeah. Like you mentioned with, uh, I guess that was off mic with the uh, writing on the wall solo. Yeah. Which he had one version for the, for, uh, the Legacy tour and then he changed it slightly for the current tour. Yeah. And that's the version you love. Yeah, I, I think it's better than the recorded one. It's slightly more traditional, yeah. I would say. Anyway, that's Beast. Yeah. An incredible production. So like I said, they were going uh, as tax ex exiles. They were uh, rehearsing and writing Jersey. Shining, and, the Shining style. And, uh, kind of the Shining, you know, the, an abandoned hotel. Yeah, the Le Chalet. Yeah. yeah. And uh, apparently, 
when they had like pre-production, uh, Martin was there, not all the time when they were rehearsing, uh-huh. but according to, I can't remember who said it, if it was Adrian or Steve, but he used to come to the rehearsals with a little boombox. Okay. And uh, sitting in a corner, recording when they ran through the songs, not talking that much, making notes. And then he went home and thought about, okay, what we have here? Okay, we have this song, listening to it, and then going back to the band with suggestions. And I think we could do this. And what do you think about this? I do that too, every production now. I didn't in the beginning. Uh, I might have picked it up from hearing this same tidbit, but uh, for me, it's it's a very useful approach because there's like the way the band sounds and the way they imagine the record there's some discrepancy there and i need to find the bridge yeah uh, plus it's just a good way to get to know the guys and yeah. basically just be around a bit and yeah. and uh, not go straight for the red button fever you know kind yeah, of yeah, a yeah, relaxed yeah. approach and uh, uh, getting familiar with the tunes as well yeah when there's new tunes being rehearsed so um, it's a good approach, probably quite common, but also very wise. I would yeah. say. So what do you think we should listen to from Peace of Mind then? Record at Compass Point, I first Bahamas. Wanna, uh, actually, I first want to listen to your lowdown on this production uh, in your words, and then an example. You have been familiar with this record for yeah. a bunch of years. Yeah, uh, for uh, since 83 was the first I heard. It's like, like I said before. Was it the very first, right? Yeah. It was and then the f- Power Slave on its release, if yeah, I recall. Yeah, exactly. It's kind of it's strange. It makes me feel very old when I think of it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, it, makes, it makes you come off as older than I would have uh, <laughs> gauged initially. Anyway. Born in 74, when and, Black and anyway. White TV was up to date. <laughs> Anyway, I think uh, listening to these albums now with adult eye, ears, mm-hmm. listening with eyes, no, oh, listening with adult ears, <laughs> I think that it's very different sounding from different. Was, Killers yeah. and Number of the Beast. I was going to say that, a bit uh, of a departure. Ex- I mean, the bass sound is very different. Very different. And uh, according to some sources... Uh, and uh, uh, he didn't use the Offender. He used uh, Ibanez Roadster bass. Okay. Yeah, and uh, mm, we that know for it makes sense. Yeah, it makes sense. Now and that you we, say it, I never and, thought about it. And we know that he had one of these. He even used it in in some of the videos. I think number in Trooper the, video. I it think it's troop? not it's not Offender in the Trooper video. I don't is think. it the Number of the Beast video? And then it's the Lado thing, right? He had on Power. But Severa. it was later. Yeah. Uh, and um, so it's it's different. They had Nico now, uh, who could do. And I know there are many Clive fans out there who think Clive is the best drummer for Iron Maiden. Well, I can't decide. I love love them both. Yeah, but I mean, Bruce said when Nico got in the band, it was like their new favorite toy. It was like, yeah, wow, can we make him do that? Like uh, fall and carry for you. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Your favorite toy. Is he, he's Nico was. This? Is he comfortable with this? <laughs> Being the, the toy of uh, Daddy K. Yeah. It sounds dirty. But for, yeah, anyway. For Erik Folke or Per Fansson. Uh, right. My toys. Good, good, good toys, good tools. Uh, but yeah, Nico is, uh, uh, I was going to say, I love them both. And yeah. sometimes it's just Clive that I want to hear, but I will, if I have to, on the gunpoint, I will pick Nico because of 
pretty much that. But yeah. he has become such an important part of the Iron Maiden sound. Yeah. And he had such a strong entry in um, Peace of Mind. Yeah. Like the drums on that album are really cool mm. and a bit different. Yeah. You know, you're, you're not no longer in the Assault Attack sound, uh, Number of the Beast sound. Uh, it's also a different continent, yeah. obviously, altogether. Yeah. Uh, yeah. That probably affected it, things more so those days than today because it's the same computer wherever you are. Uh, but, um, but yeah, well, it's the same, probably the same um, tape recorders, but uh, different continent, maybe different uh, array of microphones. I don't know if he flew his favorite mics over, maybe a couple of them. I, I mean, know. these are the things that you would like to know, right? Yeah, yeah I would like these to These are the have, things like, that long if we interview. had a chance to sit down and talk to Martin Birch, yeah. you would ask him, how did you go about that? Right. Did right. you do this? Or did, did you, like you said, do you bring your own microphones mm. or did you just use what was available? We have to get into some necromancy, I think. After we do that theme, theme seventies theme song for uh, other bands, and yeah. then we get into necromancy, so we can yeah. interview yeah. Martin Birch. Uh, that would be great. Yeah, there are so many things that we would like to have known. Yeah, uh, and maybe there was a secret ingredient. Maybe it was a, the secret sauce. <laughs> well, I kind of take it at face value when he says that he's doing it simple, because yeah. that's usually the case in like skilled craftsmen. Yeah, like when you're a skilled craftsman. You kind of go back to the basics yeah. and you have the fingerspitzengefühl, the yeah. fingertopskänsla, the, the, the touch, yeah. rather than tricks or gimmicks. And I think that uh, I, I talked to John Gaffney, a friend, about this, uh, that uh, he didn't have a sound. There was no sound, which is true, but there are things, as we have discovered through all these hours of listening mm-hmm. to Martin Birch, that we have... The, Some styles, yeah. The way he mixes yeah. things, the 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 drum guitar effects, yeah, guitar the little, little things. But it's true that he didn't have a sound, and I think that simply comes down to he didn't have a, a he didn't have the studio, he didn't have a studio where he could use his amps, his mics. His, not his setup. He just or went maybe somewhere. Maybe even work with some acoustic um, yeah. engineer yeah. that, like, kind of according to his taste, would uh, adapt the room. Yeah. Obviously, when they arrive at Compass Point, where we are at now, mm. there's no nothing to do about the room. It's the, mm. that room. Yeah. And Tax Haven or whatever yeah. is going on there. Yeah. Uh, so that was probably a bit of a challenge, I would think, yeah. to, to arrive there. Uh, I don't know if he recorded uh, a lot abroad before that. Not not that much, no. He recorded the Black Sabbath and in the US. Right. He recorded Miami uh, and LA. Uh, Blue Oyster Cult. The White Snake albums, I think, were recorded in England, but I can't can't say for sure. What I know for sure is that David Coverdale is uh, an Englishman. He is. Maybe the most Englishman. <laughs> oh, oh, darling. Oh, oh, or maybe that's the way he wants to present himself, at least. Yeah, it works. It works. <laughs> well, it really works. Uh, anyway, so doing this album, uh, we're talking about the sounds. Uh, big departure, big change. The guitars are very... They're almost a bit weaker. You think? I think Murray. Murray, yeah, a bit of the muffled or muddier sound, yeah, perhaps. Yeah. A little less uh, bright, because the Number of the Beast, I uh, failed to mention that, but when I listen to the isolated guitars on Number of the Beast yeah. uh, that are available, they sound... Like uh, quite often is the case with metal, they sound way thinner than you would have think. Yeah. Than you would have think would have thought because they complement, of course, they are complemented by bass and uh, drums. Mm. So they are kind of like up there, yeah, 
almost. Yeah. And I think it's a little bit of a lower band representation, the frequency band that is in um, in um, the piece of mine guitars. Yeah. And it on uh, I got familiar with it on the '98 remaster CD, and then the whole thing sounds kind of muffled. So it was only when I bought the original uh, vinyl press that I heard that sound. Yeah. The sound I love of peace of mind. Because on vinyl, to me anyway, you might fill in on this from a different perspective, but to me it sounds way meaner and uh, yeah, kind of harder on, on vinyl in a good way. Mm-hmm. Uh, might be the, the how the uh, mid-register is... Uh, yeah. uh, I was gonna say fornicating. That's not a very great <laughs> word for it, <laughs> but yeah, you, you get what I mean. Yeah. It's a, it's a very unique production. There's no other Iron Maiden album that sounds like it. And I think no. uh, mentioning that he doesn't have a sound, I think that was beneficial for Iron Maiden because they could travel in between these different soundscapes and also some sometimes connecting to the concept or artwork of the record. I think uh, Summer in Time and Seventh Sun stands out there. That they really, for me anyway, sound like they look, and uh, more so than just sounding like a Birch production. Yeah, uh, which I think is very beneficial for a band like Maiden, you know, to have these different lands, these mm-hmm. different worlds, mm-hmm. uh, and then the sound comes with it and everything. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, this is a good example. This is the most extreme piece of mind sounding song on piece of mind, I think, mm-hmm. because the bass in this song is uh, a bit nuts. Mm-hmm. It's high up. And uh, like the second half of the song is just on on leads all the time. So this is not the 98 version that I got familiar with. This is the 2014 version, I believe. Yeah, 15 remaster. Yeah, I find it sounds better. Oh yeah, much better. It's been a long time since I listened to the 98, but uh, in general... For me, and that might be like a bit like superstition or something, but I feel like it tends to be the best sound from the first pressings. Yeah. Maybe that's just a snobbish or foolish thing, but or imagined. I mean, the bass now. You see the bass? It's played on a bass. Yeah. It, it's a, it's quite a challenge to play this one on the bass. Yeah, I can tell you, you. I've heard you play it a bit. Uh, have you played it in its entirety? Yeah. We, rec- uh, we we did a song with uh, you did it live live exactly super produced but I know that there's a little hiding like room effect uh, reverb sometimes delay underneath but it's very subtle but you can hear it on the S's for example Uh, 
I don't meddle with pop music, but I think this would be considered a, a fairly mild uh, vocal mix if you're uh, a pop or hip-hop producer. But the, just the way that he sings makes it cut through in a way that a pop singer wouldn't really cut through. Right, and I know we noticed on some of the early Fleetwood Mac stuff, etc., that uh, uh, Burge mixes the vocals not too loud. It's no. part of the ensemble. Yeah, and I like that. They sound. Listen to this. I think it's a very interesting production because it sounds dry, but there's clearly quite a bit of reverb and stuff in there. They recorded this one at the Bahamas, Compass Point Studios, and they, and they went back there in 84, but the sound between Peace of Mind and Power Slave... Another huge jump. Power Slave is a highlight, I think, in his career. Uh, let's move on to that, I guess. So, I mean, compare... Uh, let's do like Flash of the Blade or something. Exactly. What was your thought? Yeah, great minds and all that. This guitar sound is harsh. Very fucking cool. Like it's a techno trance riff, kind of. And how the drums kick in without bass, also very cool. Listening to, to these isotracks, the guitar sound on Power Slave is nasty. Nasty. And Yannick isn't, Yannick even, there. isn't even there. <laughs> it's nasty. It's nasty. It's, uh, probably the most distorted guitars yeah. they've ever had. And, uh, and I mean, even if you listen to the isotracks, it's not even comfortable to listen to. They don't, they don't sound good. Right. But then you have, with all the rest, it feels like, okay, it's a nice place. Which is generally how you should do metal, basically. Like uh, if you listen to, a, let's say, a, a super heavy track like Bleed by Meshuggah, the guitars aren't very heavy because they get help from kick drums, uh, a bit of bass and all that. So it's more definition. And these are very defined. Again, maybe painfully defined sometimes and quite distorted. The smell of resin Sometimes I think this is the best made in production. Bright and uh, very powerful. And listen to that de -de 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 yeah. guitar. That's the E string thing. Very harsh. It's very harsh. But very in tune though. Yeah. Like 
Sakadian said, I think he said that recently on a, a kind of Twitter feed, that he went a little nuts here in the middle. You know, just adding and adding. I think all these guitars are Adrian. Would believe so too, yeah. Probably the entire song. Unless they did like a foundational take. And this. Drums. Good feel, yeah. yeah. And the neoclassic. And this is a brew song. <laughs> yeah, but well, it must be some weird thing going on yeah. there. I mean, clearly it should be a Dickinson Smith. A Smith Dickens song, but uh, I think it was Greg that called that when we did this song way back. Yeah. Like it must be uh, a bit of Adrian in there. I guess he at least for sure help, helped out to to sort out the song. It's a it's a great song. So again, recorded at the same place, Compass Point, uh, and different sound. There's a little bit of a lineage, would you agree, from yeah. Peace of Mind? But everything is just a little bit harder. Yeah. Kind of tighter sounding. A, a bit. But for sure, harsher. It's a very metal sounding record. Yeah. And we all love the sound. But now it's time to take a pause. Because we have come to Live After Death. Live Animal. And I have to ask you, do you think that Live After Death sounds great? No. It doesn't. It doesn't sound great. Do you think the Los Angeles recording sounds better than the Hammersmith recording? No, I think the Hammersmith recording is vastly superior to my ears. Yeah, sound-wise we're yes, talking now, sound the wise. sound. But also five very cool songs, uh, just adding that. Yeah. You can check out that episode with uh, our friend Henrik. Uh, it's both of, uh, for both of us, it's our favorite side of Life of Death is that D side. But you know, it's pleasing in balance, I think. It's a good mix. But the, the, I think the core sounds maybe are not so stellar. I don't know how they recorded this, but I, I just think or assume or feel or like to think that I'm hearing that there's a lot of... Uh, Audience mics. Yeah, or some kind of stereo. Yeah. You know, like you would mic up a classic uh, orchestra uh, that you would use a lot of just a pair of ears, basically, and base it on that. And then you just uh, add the closed mics sort of from underneath to define it a bit. I think it's a good sounding record, but definitely not great. And I mean, to be fair, the, the band are well into the tour here. Oh yeah, Bruce is tired, and I I've listened to hours on hours on hours on hours of bootleg recordings, cassettes. Since I was actually a tape trader, I'm that old. Right, yes, I yeah. am. Tape trader. Was it you that did the audio? Or did you do the VHS too? The, the videos? Uh, I didn't do that much VHS. Okay. No. So you were the cassette audio guy. Henry yeah. was the video guy. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> my my twin. Yes. Uh, and I can say for sure that that Bruce sang better earlier on the tour. By, by this point of t in the tour, he was... He's a bit pitchy here and there. Yeah, yeah. But he has the conviction though. He's not phoning it in. No.
sound to yeah. inside ABC. You talked about the album, how you how you perceive an album. Yes. And I think in this a case is a of, super case of that. Absolutely. Because the sleeve. The sleeve is all the photos. Easily the best album cover for a live album ever. I think as a package, it is the best. And your singer, either him or his brother, said uh, <laughs> that he couldn't imagine a more beautiful picture <laughs> in that old SVT thing. And, uh, you know, it's uh, very metal. And it's the Van Gogh inspiration is very cool. Uh, the Starlit Night, the blue and yellow colors. Yeah, and yeah, uh, yeah. just incredibly nicely drawn Eddie. Yeah, yeah. Cool details. Yeah. Um, and uh, calling back to Power Slay with some lightning flashes. And, yeah. Uh, it's uh, it's so nice that it's uh, it's part of the discography. It's not like a, a random photo of a stage, yeah. like uh, on stage rainbow. What an ugly sleeve! Yeah, looks like shit. Looks like someone shat at at, at the sleeve. Basically, <laughs> it's really ugly. It's just a photo. <laughs> yeah, but it's not even nice. It's like no. uh, not very clear. Looks... Uh, I would say it looks uh, cheap. Yeah. And most live albums would be obviously like just a photo from the gig or something. So to have that very, uh, well, super ambitious sleeve. And from a Martin Birch perspective, of course, he makes the album. But there is also like a short essay written by Martin about doing live recordings. Because right. yeah. he had done a few quite famous you recordings. Your papers? As we... Uh, uh, no, I don't, unfortunately. So we're adding some visual content to this audio-only experience. <laughs> As we, we don't do that too often. Um, and you know what it looks like. If you... Yeah, it's super ambitious. Yeah. You forget maybe sometimes about that cool city. Yeah. Uh, in the background, uh, with the graveyard, of course, in the foreground. Uh, death is present. Yeah. Um, with his sight around the moon. And this Eddie is um, a very cool Eddie. And to me, actually, I'm not saying just saying this because we're having a Martin Birch pod here, mm -hmm. but I mean, live album mixed, produced, engineered by Martin Birch just make the album even cooler. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so you say there's this an essay on one mm -hmm. of these inlays here. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. And here it is. I think it's live recording thoughts. Thoughts by Martin Birch. Exactly. It's a bit of a text. But it's also like his own words, which we have not been spoiled with a lot. Unfortunately, no. So it starts with with that. Uh, the first live album I ever recorded was um, The Purples, made in Japan in 72. The first thing you decide, naturally, is which concerts to record. Mm -hmm. And here, they actually, a small side note, Maiden has been sh picking weird concerts to record, like that... Uh, uh, last uh, live uh, will compromise record Nights of the Dead, which was recorded on very high altitude, long into the tour. Mm. He sounded uh, Bruce sounded great in Stockholm, but he's not sounding so cool on that. Like he, he hardly gets uh, wiggles there out of his mouth. No. So I don't know about that. It's such a weird recording, weird choice, weird. Uh, yeah, stand why? by. Self-bootleg is what I call it. I think it's one of those, you know, most bands, even my bands, we record most shows these yeah. days to have for ourselves. Yeah. But then came COVID, blah, blah, blah. Mm. Often it's the best to record in major cities where there's good access to a top-class mobile studio. Mm. Hammersmith, it says, uh, recording facility, Rolling Stones mobile, yes? Yes. Uh, assistant engineers, um, three of them actually, no, two of them. Um, and uh, 
recording facility for Long Beach was a record plant mobile number three. Okay. And with uh, an engineer came included with that. Actually, two engineers. An engineer and a second engineer. So Martin maybe is truly the producer now, uh, even though he's always been an engineer. But I mean, recording a live album, you need you need guys to put up the mics. Yeah, and obviously the fix studio, the cables. You know the studio. Yeah. Like uh, when I've been in house uh, live sound, if a band comes with a live sound engineer, mm-hmm. they want me to be there because I'm familiar with the mm-hmm. with the stuff. Mm-hmm. So it makes sense. Uh, let's see here. So he says that doing it in a major city saves expenses in terms of travel and accommodation costs. And uh, that major city venues are usually more experienced with live recordings. So the staff are generally more amendable and helpful. Also, it helps if the band are able to play multiple dates. I've used the Rolling Stone mobile on many occasions. Very well designed and gets a great sound. Also, I know the mobile crew. Yeah, that's the crew we talked about. I know them well, and it makes life easier and leads to better results. Although I've used Record Plant Studios on a number of occasions, I never used the mobile in LA. On checking technical data, I found Record Plant Mobile um, to be of excellent technical quality. For example, it has, oh, here we get nerdy, API custom board mixing board i would say uh, one of the best there is and um, one of only three in the world also i know a couple of the engineers and again that helped so we're getting towards the end stretch here next you order all the microphones the recording uh, mics are far more sensitive than the mics used for the front of house sound makes sense i've always wondered if they used a, a different kit i would imagine they would rather than just splitting the signal, uh, which is the other way to go about it. So probably two mics and everything that would normally be one with more sensitive microphones. Okay, I usually select a wide range and try out different combinations. So it's quite ambitious approach, not just like his favorite go-to's trusty mics. He's experimenting a bit and trying that out. I tend to be pretty lazy with that. If I have a microphone that works, I tend to use it yeah uh, you know but i'm always impressed with the guys that have the, like, the patience of of experimenting with different combinations um, i decided to mix at record plant because i know the studio and it sound well and the engineers are top-notch in uh, la yeah yeah so not the mobile then the actual record plant. so it was the same place where he recorded uh the mob rules mob album. rules yeah good catch they have a solid state logic 3sl that i know what it is actually it's a very famous mixing desk which tracks to go on the album are selected by the band and myself we start mixing i usually start about 1 p.m some detail and work through one or two in the morning okay so he worked from one to one Mm -hmm. existing on junk food imported from various sleazy hollywood joints i haven't read this before i don't think so now it's the final paragraph um, when the mixing is finished and approved by the band, we master it, uh, checking the EQs and uh, making final slight adjustments. Cutting Maiden albums is often difficult as they tend to give you give the fans great value by putting 25 minutes of music on each side. I mentioned that before, that um, uh, both Power Slave and uh, 
summer and time are unusually long mm -hmm. for a single vinyl format. Yeah. So you have to make some compromises there. So here we go. And he says a normal one would be in between 16 and 20, which is correct. This gives the cutting engineer great problems in getting all the grooves without losing volume and clarity. However, the best can do it, and we only use the best. <laughs> I like it. It's kind of a American approach here. Like yeah. We got the best engineers. We got the best mixing desks. Uh, wow. uh, so it finishes with the cut goes to the factory, and uh, we get the pressings of the album a few days later. Today it's months later. Mm. It's a huge queue for vinyl these days. The band and myself check these, and then the record is on its way to the shelves. Hope you enjoy it, Martin Birch. So pretty basic stuff, really, but um, his own words. Mm. It sounds sound. Using only the best. Only the best. Yeah, yeah. the best cutting engineers. Yeah. Mentioned Sanjutsu. That's a, that was cut by um, Chris Bellman, who is like one of the best ever, and it's a really good sounding vinyl. So I would add. After Love After Death, they wanted to record somewhere in time in Musicland, but apparently it wasn't available. That's why they ended up recording uh, somewhere in time in two different studios. Uh, and another for mixing too. And another for mixing too, yeah, yeah exactly. So they recorded first uh, uh, the backing tracks. Drums, Compass Point. Compass Point, and then uh, in uh, Vis Lord. Yeah, in the Netherlands. Yeah. The add-ons and mixing in New yeah. York. Yeah. And it's the most expensive production of an album uh, that they have ever had. Yeah. Because of the logistical yeah, you're gonna issues. Yeah, band in a hotel in New York. It's going to be expensive, etc. I don't know if the whole band was there. Actually, I don't know. I don't think so. I know Adrian was. Because I've, I've written quite a bit of stuff on Summer in Time, I actually went to the mix in uh, New York, which I didn't, never really used to do. Stuff like the guitar sound was a bit more lush sounding with the amps we were using, and also the snare drum. Whereas Nick tunes his snare very high, we were trying to get it more round sounding and uh, maybe a little bit of reverb on it, you know. So we fattened that up a bit. We had the keyboards, we had the, had the guitars, had a bit more effects going on so it wasn't so dry. I remember we went back to some flash hotel in, uh, in Manhattan. It was me and uh, Martin Birch, but we'd taken a mix back to the hotel to listen to it. I had a little ghetto blaster in the room, so we had a couple of drinks. And I'd said to the guys in the bar, uh, that Tom Jones, the famous Welsh singer, was, uh, was lurking about in the bar. So they didn't believe me. They said, I wouldn't be in there, blah, blah, blah. Anyway, so we went upstairs. And we put the uh, put the stuff on. We listened to it. And there's a knock on the door. Open the door, and there's, and there's Tom Jones standing there. He had a bottle of champagne, cigar. He had the old bow tie a bit loosened, you know. And he said, "Oh, lads," uh, he said, "I heard the music. Mind if I come in for a listen?" So uh, that's my Welsh accent, by the way. And uh, so I said, "Yeah, come in, mate. <laughs> Have a seat." So. Uh, he really liked what he heard, you know. He said, oh, that sounds really good. Tom's sitting there, pouring champagne smoke. So he stayed there till about four o'clock in the morning. Again, a different sound. Clearly, like, uh, anyone can hear the, the change in them, uh, adding the synths and etc. But also the foundational sounds are a bit different. Do you like this one, the production? I know it's a... Uh, 
a, a strong favorite among many Maiden yeah, fans. Elijah Falkar, for example. Yeah, but it's not my favorite, no, production-wise. I like it, though. the summer in time sound and if you listen to b-sides like uh, that girl it's there too and I kind of want more of it I really like the sound I love I love the guitars on this record I think they sound really cool switching from tube amps as well yeah and I think you can hear that the drum sound is quite familiar to to Power Slave. Yeah. It's the the, the the guitar sound is vastly different. Vastly different. The bass sound probably too. The, and they used uh, solid state. Yeah, they didn't use tube amps. Yeah. They used the um, Galleon Krieger. Yeah. Yeah. With the inbuilt chorus. I'm not sure if that was the chorus they used, but they used plenty of chorus. Yeah. Uh, plenty. Yes. Yeah. I've said it before, but when we play the songs in the cover band, I asked Christian, so when do we have the chorus on? for these songs and he said the entire song so when we play songs from this album it's on <laughs> both guitars all the time I love the snare on this record I don't think Martin suggested that they should start to use synthesizer. He wasn't that kind of producer, but the band wanted to try that out and he was up for it. And he goes into that the band moving from world to world and he is accommodating the new worlds as they go. And maybe that's what I like most about Summer in Time production. It's forward facing because we don't think of Maiden as a band that uh, spearheads trends. Not today. No, not really, no. And they didn't even then. I mean, this is the Maiden version of it. It's not Turbo Lover or Ram It Down. No, it's not that extreme. Uh, no. no, no, no. But at, the, at the, that time, in 86, they were like lumped together like, okay, yeah, now for, bands do yeah. this. Yeah, exactly. Uh, for example, the drums here are, as you said, they have a natural sound. Yeah. They don't have any of that. They have a, maybe a bit more reverb, but it's mainly the guitars. Because the rhythm guitars even have reverb on which is sort of a no-no among many, uh, but I can like it. I think it sounds pretty big. Shall we continue? Let's head to Munich. Exactly. So now they did, like we said, end up in, in yes. Germany. In and Munich. again, a different sound. Yeah. It carries on with some of the stuff, but to me, it always was a very different sounding record compared to Summer in Time. I get how they get paired, but to me, they're almost as different as Peace of Mind and Power Slave. Here the drums are a bit brighter. Yeah, the, the sound is great for Nico. Yeah, and Nico's drumming is... Incredible drumming. And very lively, very engaged, compared to Virtual Eleven. Yeah. 
has a lighter, more airy quality yeah. than all the previous productions. Yeah. It's not a very heavy sounding record. No, no, it's not heavy. No, it's not. You know how Mastodon did like four elements, yeah. kind of, on the first records? If I did Maiden, I would say a piece of mind being earth, this being air, power slave fire, and then water. They don't have a water sounding record, I don't think. <laughs> I don't maybe think. Some, maybe summertime because it's wet, but yeah. that's stretching it. <laughs> that's. Summertime in space. And, and talking about stretching it, so they go from this, I would say, high end sonically. Yeah, it's a very professional production in any in most ways, I would say. Yeah. Is it? Uh, you were around a little bit more than I was. I was. I was, uh, I was then uh, uh, a very promising young lad at the age of one and a half, coming to two. Yeah. But, uh, would you say this sounds 88? I don't think as a 14-year-old I really thought about it, but listening back to different recordings and so on from Operation the... Mindcrime, to me, sounds more 88. Yeah, it does. Yeah. Gate, snare, reverb uh, and stuff. But then Justice for All then again sounds oh, that's a very, very different. sound. Yeah. <laughs> and what else do we have? Like Appetite for Destruction? But that sounds ahead of its time. So going from Seven Son of a Seven Son in... Yeah, you all know where we're going. Steve's house in Essex, Barnyard Studios. This is a production I um, have re-evaluated quite a bit. We talked about that a little bit before, Never Say Die and the comparison with that. And this, this album for me, I think they succeeded, with, not with the record, but the production I think is a success. And so I don't agree with Bruce saying that it was uh, too rural or I have a straw in my mouth, what a laugh. I mean, now when we listen to these, would you say that this is a totally different sounding album from what we've listened to? Not too far from Seven Sound, actually, sound-wise. The guitars are different. Back to tubes. I, yeah. I guess Seven Sound was tubes too. Anyway, it's a different guitar sound yeah. and a new guitarist. And absolutely, I think Yannick is one of the key keys to, to the different sound. And uh, the drums are a bit more... The cymbals are messier. Yeah. I think that was my biggest gripe with it when I was younger, that the hi-hat is so much louder yeah. here, than, especially compared to Summer in Time. And I know at the time, in 1990, when this came out, uh, there was like, yeah, we're going back to our Killers sound, yeah. but it doesn't really sound like Killers at all. Like. Killers is much more controlled, much more fatter too, I would say. Yeah, and the drums are more... These drums are crispy and then uh, crispy and a bit messy, yeah, if I say. Yeah, a bit wilder. I like the guitar sound. Yeah. I like the bass sound.
This was recorded on the Rolling Stone mobile, famously or infamously. Infamously, exactly. Art and it was not uh, acoustically regulated. No. So I, I think by the time we come to the next album, the the studio was more or less built. Yeah. And ready. I always really liked the sound on Fear of Dark. Actually, I know that is a bit of a divide there, but I think it's a fat-sounding record. Completely different snare sound to start off with, which is very apparent. And here the bass is a little less steady, steve-ish. A little less clunk, yeah. Yeah. Guitars are very smooth. I yeah. like that. I mean, I like the no prayer guitars, but this is a nice uh, change from that. Yeah. Very smooth. I would say one of the more slickly produced Armada records is this one. Yeah. But obviously off its time, you know, the drums are more machine-like than ever before, sound-wise. And unfortunately, this was to be the last recording he ever worked on, as we know at least. One thing we haven't mentioned is that he actually, as far as we know, started to record a solo album. In 81, a friend and a major maiden researcher, Luis Mariano Rodriguez Rojas, <laughs> discography of the Beast, yeah. which is not a discography, but it's very detailed. Yeah, it's very detailed. Uh, he had found this article from, I think, 81, uh, where uh, uh, he, a very, very short article, where he talks about uh, working on his own stuff, uh, recording, uh, playing guitar and working. Yeah, because you'd imagine him being so good at sound, yeah. go and make songs. And uh, according to Lewis, uh, he, he did actually work on songs, but uh, as far as we know, didn't get finished or he wasn't pleased we we will never know will maybe never there is know. maybe there is an album uh martin birch album martin birch fest lying somewhere in a vault but uh he never released it we never got to hear it at least which is a bit MBG. sad yeah martin birch group <laughs> MB- maybe, I, I would have liked to hear that i have this hunch he's a great guitarist I have that feeling for some reason, yeah. but I don't have many facts to back this up. I just have that feeling. A good acoustic player as well, and probably uh, he could sing at least um, enough to write the melodies. So that would have been cool. But he did go for an early pension. Mm-hmm. He did. Which, of course, is uh, knowing that he passed uh, fairly young is a good thing because he got to have you know, some, uh, some of that uh, Sweet retirement age. Uh, he had kids, right? Uh, one yeah, or two. Yeah, he had yeah. A, a daughter at least. That's Probably we could hang out more with them. And uh, yeah. I would like to imagine he had a pretty sweet life uh, in its, you know, yeah. its full wrapping. And much because he decided to go for a very early retirement, mm-hmm. Steve wasn't happy about that. Mm-hmm. He had that snarky comment to go play golf or something. Yeah. Which is a bit uh, bitter. It's a bitter a, tone to there's it. There's a tad of bitterness. There's a tad of bitterness. A little bit. It could be, it's like kind of British bitterness where it could be a joke. Yeah. But you're a little angry, aren't you? And I mean, 
reading interviews and articles from the 80s where they talk about Martin, uh, they pretty much say the same thing over and over again that uh, we can't imagine working with someone else. Uh, he's the best. He brings out the best in us. Uh, he's the perfect mirror for uh, capturing yeah. our maiden, blah, blah, blah. And I mean, since they say it all the time, uh, it's pro- probably true. I, I guess that... I if, mean, just listen to Virtual Eleven. Yeah. That's all the proof you need, yeah. in my opinion. And I do like Shirley. Uh, I think he works for the band today. Mm. And it, definitely they have a more comfortable time with him. Mm. You know, they're old dogs. They, yeah. they can't be whipped into shape that much. No. I think he, he is the right guy now for the band. I think so, too. Yeah. I, even though I would love to hear them work with Stephen Wilson. That'd be cool. Yeah. Stephen Wilson would actually be cool. Yeah. I've never thought about exactly him. I thought sometimes Bob Rock, but that was more of like as a fun experiment like, yeah. because it's so wrong. But Stephen Wilson is kind of right, and he mm. was a Maiden fan in the early 80s. Mm. If we were to, to make like a favorite Martin Birch recorded moment. Play a little bit of uh, Judas My Guide because I like the sound of that intro as so, uh, the second piece, I guess, from Fear of the Dark. <laughs> I always felt this had a high production value, this intro. It's like Seven Sun, but fatter. And the ultra smooth Dave. It's plenty of delay. Dave delay. This and, and Be Quick or Be Dead are the most uh, successful uh, uh, songs combined with this sound. Because not all songs on the album are. Actually, I think it's the vocals that sound the most dated on this record, but it's also a, a kind of tired Bruce. Yeah, it has that angry fox. Uh, a tad of that, yeah. yeah. It's nice sustain in the guitars. It's like... So, favorite birch. Bits. If I were to pick one, and starting with Iron Maiden, my favorite bit would be this bit of Rhyme of the Ancient Mariner. Is the bit coming or this actual bit? Going from this into... Okay, so the combination. Yeah. Yeah, it's great. And it's... Uh... It's uh, cut together, it was yeah. co- recorded in three, three pieces. And since it was pre-keyboards, right now we're listening to a bass and a hi-hat. Well, now, it's the muted electric and the singing, but the, what comes in after that, uh, let's call it ambient part, yeah. it's just a bass and a hi-hat, yeah. which is uh, kind of cocky, I would say. The guitar sound is quite unflattering but very tight. Yeah, maybe it's a bit unflattering, but yeah, it's, yeah, it's, it's I mean, I mean the, the sound, if you, if you don't play this right, it will sound awful. Yeah, you gotta play tight with this yeah. sound. But the playing form of this record is also kind of above and beyond. You know, everything is just performance. Yeah. 
my favorite bit is what comes now. Yeah, exactly, I would say. But it's a combination of going... Yeah. The three, maybe a one, two, three punch almost. The ambience, the load up, and then uh, this bit, the release. It's an incredible release. And the way the drums just dynamically play What is your pick? For me then, uh, since we didn't play it, um, let's go for a bit of an early one, but uh, avoiding the killer's um, hype that I've been in and play uh, Children of the Damned. I think that's because we get a bit of the acoustic there, which was uh, very prominent in his early work. Is it Dave playing the acoustic guitar? It's like that, right? Non-maiden favorite for um, choice cut. Oh yeah, that's a great song overall. Yeah. Like I said before, when we talked about Black Sabbath, this is one of my favorite albums, favorite sounding albums, and this is one of my favorite songs of one of my favorite albums. Yeah, this was the song that brought this album over the edge for me, the edge going into all-time greatness. Falling into the all-time, falling over, over the edge of, the edge of, of the world and into, into greatness. <laughs> exactly. And unlike uh, over and over, I don't see this song as uh, particularly dark. I see it more like fantastical. Yeah. And I think too, if you're a Maiden fan, you probably think this is an alright song. Yeah, the, that riff. Uh, you I should think. think it's the one of the best songs in the world, but I don't make those kind of decisions. 
haven't thought about all these layers when I've listened to the song many a time. Acoustic guitar and the, the choir synth? I guess, but it's slowed down, so I think... Yeah, it has a tape sound to it's it. It's a tape effect. And then that little kick. Very effective. And there's a real slugger doom riff coming. Is that timpani or is it... Right, there's a crash, a snare and whatever that is. And a gong. Though he didn't produce it, I would like to suggest uh, Wishbone Ash, since it's so beautifully recorded. And we are, of course, talking about the uh, Argus. Argus album, exactly. I'm partial to Leaf and Stream on that one. I think it sounds really nice, but they all do. And like we said in the episode where we talked about this. It's uh, produced by Derek Lawrence, previously worked with Deep Purple, and uh, Martin is just the uh, engineer. I've come to the conclusion that engineer is the tougher of the two jobs. It's debatable, but I think so. Mm. Alone I've walked this path for many years Listen to the wind calls my name Yesterday looks so sad Wait your breath of spring It's an amazing album, actually. I think we should end all this with a quote. Uh, it's not uh, Martin Birch, it's, uh, it's Bruce Dickinson, or Bruce Dickinson quoting There are two types of producers. 
One type thinks that it's his record, that he's going to make a hit record that will sell shitloads and everyone will say he's a great producer. He sipped his beer and looked around the bar with disdain. And then there are producers who are just a mirror. We reflect the artist in the best way to let their message, their sound come through. And what if the band is shit, I asked. I don't do shit bands. <laughs>